Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Radia Lou on the socials. Confused about fertility and trying to get pregnant? Want to know more but don't want to flag it to the world? Welcome to our podcast, Knocked Up. I'm your host, Geordie Morrison. I have no medical background, but I'm a 40-year-old woman who has gone through freezing her eggs. And I'm joined, as always, by Dr. Rayleigh Alou, CREI Certified Reproductive Endocrinologist and Infertility Specialist. We started this podcast with the aim to provide easy-to-understand information on hard concepts relating to fertility, infertility, and all aspects of women's health. Today, we welcome back Dr. Zipporah Ben-Harim, our lead gynecologist at Women's Health Melbourne. And Zippy is back to talk about one of her most frequently seen issues, which I'm going to call heavy periods, but Raelia and Zippy probably have another name for. Yes, the official name is menorrhagia. There you go, menorrhagia. Rage is probably accurate. Um, yeah, so menorrhagia goes under the uh, umbrella of abnormal uterine bleeding. So the bleeding can be during the period and then it's menorrhagia and not during the period. And that's a different topic that we can discuss as well. Yeah, so if it's not during your period, we call it dysfunctional, dysfunctional mm. uterine bleeding. And this is something that presents itself quite frequently. So what is it? What defines heavy bleeding? So heavy bleeding uh, has two aspects. One is more objective and the other one is more subjective. Just to comment on um, how frequent it is, it's uh, one in three presentations to uh, outpatient or office gynecologist. With regards to the objective one, when the bleeding causes uh, iron deficiency and anemia, um, that's an objective measure of heavy menstrual loss. With the subjective, it's the impact on the quality of life, which can be social, emotional, uh, financial with losing days at work. So we cannot just limit it to the impact on the blood count and the iron studies, but we have to have kind of a global assessment, which includes uh, the numbers and the individual uh, perception of the loss. Yeah, and women can have events like flooding where they go out and, you know, kind of have to, in a, in a difficult scenario, change their outfit because they've suddenly had bleeding that's, you know, gone everywhere. So that in itself, those kind of events are very difficult to cope with. Even if the iron studies are normal and they manage to keep their hemoglobin up, that would be very upsetting for a woman. Yeah, so I've seen women that... Um, don't go out on the heavy days of the period because of the the fear that um, they will be caught unprepared and, yeah, they will have this flood that will go through double protection. So they just avoid going out on the heavy days. 
You've both mentioned um, iron count. So that would be one of the medical effects of heavy periods is it can affect your iron levels. Yeah, because iron's a building block for hemoglobin and hemoglobin is the protein in our red blood cells. So if we lose a lot of blood, we lose iron as our body tries to replace that blood loss. So when we become iron deficient and anemic, that's kind of problems that cause a vicious spiral because if we don't have the building blocks to make new blood cells, our bodies won't be able to make them. And being anemic makes you tired and makes you less able to cope with everything in life, really. Let's go back to menorrhagia. Um, and I think periods is an easy place to start. And what is what is a normal period? How do you know you're normal? So there is a bit of a range of what is considered normal. Periods uh, that are post-cycle uh, of ovulation will be quite regular. Um, so regular cycles would, would be between 24, 25 days. So that is from the first day of one period to the first day of the next period up to 35, 38 days. So they're quite predictable. It's not clockwork, but they're quite predictable. And many women will have some symptoms and signs leading to that leading. 28 days is an average. So women think you have to have a 28-day cycle, but you know, what Sippy just said is 100% correct, that there is a massive range of what's normal and that we are not machines. We don't have the exact same cycle every month. If you don't have a 28-day metronomic cycle on the beat every single month, that doesn't make you abnormal necessarily. It just makes you human. <laughs> yeah, 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 100%. So the bleeding goes for three to seven days and um, blood loss, if we it will be uh, the upper range of normal would be 80 mils per uh, menstrual bleed. Now, no one measures it or majority of people don't measure it. So we try and put some other numbers in place. Uh, so women that need double protection that cannot rely either on a tampon or a pad or women that need to change uh, every two hours or women that need to wake up at night to um, get changed, that's, that's heavy loss. Putting things in, in perspective, looks can be deceiving. So up to 30% of women that think that the loss is heavy, the loss is actual, actually normal. And concerningly, 40% of women that think that their loss is normal, it's heavy. We're not good judges. We don't judge it well. Yeah. Look, a little bit of blood does go a long way. But how do we know? You know, You only know what your own period does. And some feedback that uh, we got from uh, our mom or from our auntie, like they, they would say, oh, yeah, you're meant to bleed and it's going to hurt. Yeah, it's true. We're told a lot of mm. things that, I mean, periods do can be uncomfortable and you can have period pain without it being a pathology because what happens is the uterus contracts and just like it contracts in labor, it's not a pathology to have a contraction in labor. It's not a pathology to have a contraction in your period. But extreme period pain is not normal. Debilitating period pain that puts you completely out of action for a day is not normal. What causes heavy periods? So um, it is classified into groups and the importance of identifying the cause is that when we know what's wrong, we uh, can direct our treatment more specifically. There is a possibility of a structural problem. So a structural problem can be uh, fibroids or polyps. 
up to 30% of women that have heavy menstrual loss will have fibroids and up to 10% will have endometrial polyps. So basically those structural findings distort the cavity of the uterus and distort the lining of the uterus and that causes increased bleeding. In, in many patients, if we rectify that and we uh, restore the cavity to be a normal cavity, the bleeding will slow down and go back to normal. Yeah, so what Fitzsimmons is talking about there is physical rectification, so using a surgical measure to make the periods better. And for some women that can be really important. Um, I guess the other thing, Sip, is adenomyosis, which is where that's a structural concern in that the glands of the lining can grow into the muscle, but we don't necessarily operate with adenomyosis because we can't remove it. It's very diffuse throughout the uterus. So what we do there is more hormonal management or surgical management in the form of hysterectomy if in extreme cases that's needed. Yeah, correct. So adenomyosis is um, similar to endometriosis. So endometriosis is the presence of endometrial tissue, which is the lining of the uterus within the mainly within the pelvic cavity. Adenomyosis is a situation when the endometrial tissue is within the wall of the uterus. So that cannot be excised, that cannot be removed. And we use hormonal suppression similar to what we do with endometriosis to try and uh, suppress the endometrial tissue, the tissue that is inside the uterus or inside the wall of the uterus. And that works in at least 80% of women. Women at the end, so after completing their family, can choose to have a hysterectomy, which is a surgical definitive treatment for um, adenomyosis. And that that does sound quite extreme, Sippy, but for some women, it's life-changing, isn't it? Yeah. So our aim is to try and get resolution of symptoms with the least invasive and the least radical treatment. But then the decision on the treatment is a combination of the clinical situation and patient choice. As long as it's an informed choice and women are aware of all their options, I believe that it's our right to make our own decision as to what would be the most appropriate treatment for ourselves. So, Sipi, in a woman who does not want to have a hysterectomy, wants to keep her uterus, maybe maybe she seeks future fertility or maybe she just doesn't like the idea of a surgery, what could we do in terms of managing heavy menstrual periods? All right, so we'll go back to the reason for the heavy period. So we'll differentiate women that have normal cycles, so not normal, regular cycles without a pathology in the uterus to uh, women with background of heavy bleeding because they have a bleeding disorder or they're on medications that increase the tendency to bleed or women that don't, uh, that have polycystic ovaries and don't ovulate. So if we look at women that have uh, regular cycles and the uterus is normal, so the, the cavity is normal, a uh, majority of women will respond, so 80% will respond to a suppressive hormonal management. The one we most commonly recommend would be uh, Marina IUD. So that's an intrauterine device that is a contraceptive device, and that reduces the blood loss as it thins out the lining of the uterus. And we now have Kylina as well, don't we, the mini Marina? Kylina... Uh, can last for three years. The advantage of the Kylina 
is um, that it's probably easier to insert in young women who have not had uh, kids yet. The downside is that uh, the control of bleeding is not as good as the one we get with the marina. I guess that makes sense because the dose is higher on the marina. So we talked about removing polyps and fibroids to try and improve heavy menstrual bleeding. Do you want to talk about how we do that? Well, let's talk about polyps and fibroids separately because they're not quite the same. The initial uh, diagnosis uh, should be suspected on an ultrasound. As part of the investigation for heavy menstrual loss, we'll get a good quality pelvic ultrasound with a preference to get an internal ultrasound, a vaginal ultrasound, because that gives more accurate information. In young girls who haven't been sexually active yet, we can do an abdominal ultrasound. So that's a, an ultrasound that is done on the tummy with a full bladder because the full bladder displaces the bowel from the pelvis and then we're left with the uh, bladder and the gynae organs. So we should have a suspicion of a polyp or a fibroid based on a pelvic ultrasound. The next step to investigate would be to organize a hysteroscopy. Hysteroscopy is a day procedure that usually is done under general anesthetics. In some settings, it can be done as an outpatient procedure in which we use some kind of medium to distend the uterus and be able to see the cavity. So we'll see the cavity, we'll see the opening of the tubes, and we'll see the cervical canal. Majority of hysteroscopies are done using water to distend the uterus. And then we can see polyps that outpouching into the uterine cavity or fibroids um, that are, again, outpouching into the uterine cavity. We cannot see fibroids that are outpouching into the pelvis. Yeah, so it's only looking at the uterus from the inside. CP, I find for fertility the most worrying type of fibroid and also for heavy bleeding, one of the most worrying types of fibroid is the submucous fibroid, which is the type of fibroid that actually impacts into the uterine cavity. And, you know, I've had patients who submucous fibroids have caused miscarriages. I've patients who have had uh, submucous fibroids cause an inability to get pregnant. And also I'm sure uh, you have, as I've had many patients who have submucous fibroids that have had really horribly heavy periods. And submucous fibroids are the type of fibroids that we can remove through that kind of very low level invasive keyhole surgery where we just put a little camera through the natural opening of the cervix and sculpt that fibroid that's in the cavity back to correct it to the contour of the normal uterus. Um, in terms of that, we talked about using salty water to distend the cavity. If we want to operate on a polyp or a fibroid, we use what's called glycine and that's because that liquid doesn't conduct electricity and we use electrical energy. So we don't want to electrocute our patient. Uh, we want to make sure that it's done safely. So we use glycine. Um, we've got a information page on hysteroscopy on our Women's Health Melbourne website and we'll put a link in the show notes for anyone who's interested in all of the um, pros and cons of, of those procedures. Sippy, in terms of fibroids in the wall of the uterus, I for fertility don't tend to remove them if they're not impacting the cavity of the uterus. But can you tell us about fibroids and how they can be involved in heavy 
menstrual bleeding and what options women have? So yeah, fertility and heavy periods are a bit different in the sense that for fertility, subserosal and um, so fibroids that um, are outpouching towards pelvic uh, cavity or fibroids that are within the wall of the uterus, they don't need to be removed. However, fibroids like that, so with not impouching into the cavity, if they are large enough, they can uh, contribute to heavy periods and they can contribute to pain and pressure symptoms. So that depends on size and location. Large fibroids, um, even if they are outpouching in, into the pelvic, into the pelvis, they can put pressure on the bladder, they can put pressure on the bowel, they can put pressure on tubes that are draining the kidneys towards the pelvis. So it depends on size and location. So if a woman wants to retain her uterus for future fertility, but she also needs to remove the fibroids, um, operations can be done to do that. There is always a little bit of reticence on the point of view of the fertility doctor because we don't want her to have the rare complication of needing a hysterectomy and losing her womb because that can happen. Um, but most of the time we can safely remove fibroids either through a keyhole approach or through an open approach if there are multiple fibroids and it's unrealistic to manage it through laparoscopic surgery. For single fibroids, there are some other non-invasive options, but that is very patient-specific. So there is an option to use some energy. It will be for a particular fibroid, so that cannot be for a uterus that has, has multiple fibroids. And also in some women, there is an option to block blood vessels, but that ideally is for women that are not wanting to maintain fertility. That's right. So those non-invasive methods to deal with big fibroids haven't been proven to be safe in women who want to have further babies because they do compromise the blood supply to the uterus. So we don't want to do those things, either MRI kind of cooking of the fibroid through imaging or mm -hmm. blocking blood vessels to the fibroid in someone who wants to have the option of having more babies in the future. So I guess your circumstances really do affect what options will be offered to you. Certainly. There is no one size fits all. It's a plan that will be developed according to the particular circumstances of a particular woman. Which is why it's important that if you are having heavy bleeding to make sure you do see your gynecologist and don't put it off. 100%. You just need to come and see CPE and get her to sort it out from the bottom of the problem. We talked to you about hormonal issues that can cause heavy periods. And of course, there are lots of different hormonal issues that can contribute like thyroid being out of whack and, you know, kind of other more what we call systemic or body-wide hormonal imbalances. But you also talked a little bit about polycystic ovaries. And this is a, an area where there's a lot of overlap between women who are trying to get pregnant and women who are not trying to get pregnant because women who have polycystic ovaries have them for their entire reproductive life on the most part. And it's only a small fraction of that time that they're with me trying to get pregnant. Um, let's talk a little bit about endometrial hyperplasia because that's something that can happen to women with polycystic ovaries that can cause heavy periods and is noteworthy in that it can, in really unfortunate cases, if not dealt with properly, lead to developing an endometrial cancer. So the risk of endometrial hyperplasia, so hyperplasia is overgrowth of the lining of the uterus. So 
Uterus is similar to uh, cervix and other organs in which we know that there is a progression from normal to cancer. And if it's not dealt with properly, it can progress to cancer. One of the things we do when we, dis we discuss the hysteroscopy, which is having a look with the camera into the uterus, one of the things we do is take a sample to confirm that there is nothing sinister, there is no cancer or pre-cancer before we make a decision about final treatment. We can discuss later an option for treatment, which is an endometrial ablation, which is basically destructing that lining. Before we can do that, we have to make sure that there is no pre-cancer or cancer in the uterus, because that's a contraindication to manage that. Now, going back to polycystic ovaries, women with polycystic ovaries don't have regular cycles, and then the bleeding can be not the normal bleeding, which we see in women with ovulatory cycles. So we have ovulation, which is release of, um, and, and following that release of progesterone, and then the progesterone goes down and there is bleeding, which is progesterone withdrawal. In women with polycystic ovaries, the bleeding can be just the lining is so thick that it breaks. That will happen um, randomly. If we leave the inconvenience associated with this uh, random heavy loss, there is also a risk that over time the lining will build up, will build up to pre-cancer and up to cancer. And this is why it's very important to provide some form of progesterone to prevent the lining from building up and prevent the progression to pre-cancer and cancer. Progesterone can be given, uh, can be administered in multiple ways. So it can be even taking 10 to 14 days of progesterone tablet every month, or an easier and more convenient way would be a progesterone IUD that is a slow release and basically provides protection for up to five years. Yeah, and if we're worried about endometrial hyperplasia, as Sippy says, we need to take a sample. So if we're really worried, we'll probably just do a hysteroscopy and have a look and take a really, really good sample. Occasionally in the rooms, um, if Sippy's worried on the day or I'm worried on the day, we might take a pipel sample in the in the chair by putting a tiny little tube inside the uterus and just taking a little suction-derived sample in a little tube. But uh, that's only possible if the cervix is some... Um, able to be dilated a little bit in the chair. So usually it's only useful if you've had a baby before potentially or, or at least have a, a cervix that's a little bit open. Yeah, correct. Yeah, so um, the alternative to having a procedure in the operating theatre would be to get a sample into rooms. The advantage is that you don't need to go to theatre. The downside is that we miss out on the ability to have a look and see how the cavity looks inside and we cannot get as much tissue in a pipel, the one we do in the office, as we can get in the operating theatre. Yeah, and in the theatre we can have a look and see which area we want to sample. So we have a visual alignment of which area we want to sample, whereas with the pipel it's a blind sample and it's a small yep. sample. I do pipels in the room, Sippy, most often for what we call endometrial receptivity array, which is when in infertility I'm looking to see if there's a a kind of a mismatch between when we want to put an embryo back in IVF and when um, when we're actually um, receptive. Uh, so just going to how useful PPL is, uh, the sensitivity is 97%. So it's still quite high. So if there is a normal PPL, it's very unlikely that there is something sinister going on. 
but it's not zero. So if we're clinically concerned, even if the PPL is negative, we'll have to continue with having a look and getting a larger sample that maybe will be visually directed. So it's it's gold standard. It would be considered a hysteroscopy. Yeah, yep. and look, it's one of those things, you know, if, if your gynecologist is worried about you, it's better to be safe than sorry, especially if we're worried about something like a cancer or a pre-cancer. Um, so if it's been recommended to have a hysteroscopy, there's a reason for it. Um, so very important to, to rule that out. So Sippy, you, you would always do a hysteroscopy f- before doing what's called endometrial ablation. So endometrial ablation is something that you, I'm sure, do very often, but I do very rarely because most of my patients want to have a baby. So the last thing we want to do is burn the lining of their uterus. But <laughs> it, is, it is quite an old technique that has been modified in recent times. And it is relatively effective in terms of removing the stem cells that regenerate the period um, lining every every month. The endometrium is the tissue that we grow to be receptive for a, for a pregnancy and that sheds every month with your period so if we kill the stem cells that make that lining then women would in an ideal world become what we call amenorrheic which means they don't have a period in the real world sometimes it works partially sometimes where they can have a much lighter period as opposed to to no period can you tell us a bit about the various techniques of endometrial ablation and how successful that technique is Yes, so endometrial ablation is uh, a procedure, as you said, in which we uh, destruct the lining of the uterus. So the lining of the uterus has two layers. It has a very basic layer and the one that grows every month, grows and sheds. With an endometrial ablation, we're basically uh, destroying the two two parts, the superficial one and the deep one. So it can it shouldn't regenerate. The endometrial ablation, um, there is a traditional one, it, which is the one we did until probably 10, 20 years ago, and the newer models. The traditional one was uh, using electrosurgery to basically go step by step through the uterine cavity and similar to a curette in which we just go step by step in a similar way, just with an uh, electrical current, we cook the uterus from the inside. This procedure is quite effective. However, it takes a bit of time or not a bit. It's, mm. uh, it takes time and many gynecologists nowadays don't do it. The reason we don't do it is that over the last 10 to 20 years, uh, that has been replaced by a different technique or a different concept. So the different concept is that now we use devices that just globally Uh, spread into the uterine cavity. So we need a normal uterine cavity. And using different sources of energy, destruct the lining of the uterus. Um, That can be heat, that can be freezing, that can be uh, microwave energy. The different instruments that we have um, have different success rates and different time of treatment. The one that is most commonly used is the Novasure endometrial ablation. That's the most commonly used in Australia. And that's a fairly quick procedure that uses uh, microwave energy to hook, distract the lining of the uterus. Yeah. So the old way, the old way is sometimes still useful though in someone who has a, a uterus that isn't the exact right shape for, 
for those commercially fabricated devices. Isn't that right, Sibi? Yeah, correct. There are two options. We can partially use the old way to complete areas that uh, were missed by the new technique or just do the old way all the way. And the old way, I kind of use it. I have the image in my head of like mowing a lawn. You know, when you, when you go up and down the lawn and you do like one strip at a time, that's kind of the old way. Or mm-hmm. use a rollerball diathermy or a or a um a loop diathermy to kind of do one strip of endometrium at a time, like we're mowing the lawn, and you know, kind of I think more of the the um microbe device is more like dropping a nuclear bomb in the uterus, like it just goes boom, that's <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing in one go. Yeah. So, what's the success rates then? Would it be the atomic bomb that's the highest success rate? Success rates are quite high. So success rates are over um, 95%, but it also depends on what you define as success. Um, so, yeah, so 95 to 98% of women will be happy with the outcome. 90 to 95% will have no periods at all, and the rest will have lighter periods. If this is an alternative to a hysterectomy, you're thinking, okay, how likely are we to avoid a hysterectomy? Over 95% of women that have an endometrial ablation will be able to avoid a hysterectomy within the next five years. So if we do it to someone who is in her late 40s, it's very likely to work and save a hysterectomy. That's a really important point because our hormones evolve as women and the average age of menopause when we stop having periods because of hormonal reasons is 51. So sometimes if we're having bleeding that's more of a dysfunctional nature because our hormones are going a little bit crazy in the perimenopause sometimes we want to kind of you know tide a woman over until that those periods naturally stop and we do that often to avoid a surgery if she doesn't want one yeah and it's less likely to work uh with younger women sippy we've covered menorrhagia yeah but you also mentioned dysfunctional bleeding which is when you bleed outside of your period so this is not spotting this is bleed more heavily bleeding it can be anything. So it can be from spotting um, to bleeding, and it can be from anywhere in the gynecological system. So uh, we need to thoroughly examine and make sure that there is um, nothing abnormal in the vagina, that cervix looks normal, that pap smear or cervical screening, which is nowadays is up to date, that whether the bleeding is related to sexual activity or not related to sexual activity and if the uterus is structurally normal or abnormal. So the whole uh, genital tract needs to be investigated. Yeah, and we particularly need to exclude cancer and any nasty cells anywhere in the genital tract and also infection. Some people have abnormal bleeding because they might have an STD, STI, like chlamydia, for example. So there's lots of special tests that we need to do. Yeah, we need to exclude an infection, Yeah, now going back um, to the previous topic, we need to exclude a bleeding tendency that will be more prevalent in teenagers, in women just starting having their periods. That could be the presenting sign of a bleeding tendency. So a very common one is called von Willebrand's disease, which is a genetic tendency. So women with a history of heavy periods in their mum or in their grandma or in their aunties can also present with that. And that's really important for us to know for their medical life moving forward because anytime they have a surgery or if they need to have any dental work done and particularly when they have babies 
uh, you can actually provide with um, provide women with factors that stop them from bleeding heavily. And that specific management would usually be done in consultation with a haematologist, but we have to know what the issue is in order to refer and, and, and look into it further. So going back to heavy bleeding or bleeding in general, not during uh, the period, the management depends on the source, on the cause of the bleeding. Again, identifying the cause is very useful in targeting the treatment. So Sipi, when somebody comes to see you with heavy periods, let's talk about what they can expect in a first gynecological consultation. So as in many other specialties, it will start with taking a good history and understanding what's going on, then a gynecological examination. So we have a look and then we um, have a bit of a feel of the uterus and the ovaries. If uh, cervical screening is not up to date, we need to complete cervical screening. And the next step would be kind of in three directions. So One is we need to further investigate to see what's the cause of the bleeding. Two is we need to put some measures in place to slow down the next bleed. And three, we need to assess the consequences of the bleeding, which means we need to organize a pelvic ultrasound or we can do it bedside in the rooms to try and exclude anything in the uterus like a fibroid or polyp that contributes to the bleeding or that causes the bleeding. We'll organize some hormonal studies, so we'll exclude uh, thyroid and other contributing endocrine disease, and we'll get a blood count and iron studies to assess the impact of that loss over time. So those tests take a little time to come back, but they're really important so that we can synthesize all the information and make a diagnosis that is accurate and addresses that woman's problems and concerns. And I guess on the review appointment, once we've got all that information, uh, we can expect to formulate a plan of attack and you know, offer a woman different options in order to best suit her desires and needs and also achieve the goal of a healthy regular period. And interim, while we're getting all those tests organized, we can put some measures in place to slow down the next bleeding. So we have some tablets, either hormonal or non-hormonal, that can help us slow down the loss. And that would be tranexamic acid, which is a medication that prevents clot from disintegrating. Anti-inflammatories like Ponstan or Voltaren, which again help with the bleeding and with the pain. And if it's not contraindicated, we can use progesterone, which will also help to slow down the bleeding. So whilst there might be a longer term, more permanent fix, there are some things you can do in the short term as as well. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Thank you so much, Sipi, for joining us today. Looking forward to having you back for another one of your requests. We've had got a few for you. Send them we through do. everyone we, if you have anything. We just had a, a recent listener request for ovarian cysts, Sippy, so I thought we could ask you to come back and talk about ovarian cysts with us yep. as our next episode. Yeah, easy. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Pleasure.